The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast, and uh, today we want to welcome our guest, Dr. Chris Bolt, to the Covenant Podcast to discuss the topic of presuppositional apologetics. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A quick way of introduction for Chris. Uh, Chris is a pastor and teacher of Elkton Baptist Church in Elkton, Tennessee. He's the head of theology at Legacy Bible College. He's married to his wife, Carrie, and they have three children. Uh, Chris, today, as I mentioned in our introduction, we're going to be talking about presuppositional apologetics. Uh, so let's just start off the conversation by asking, what is apologetics and where do we get the idea of apologetics from Scripture? Yeah, apologetics uh, simply refers to the defense of the Christian faith. It can, of course, refer to a defense in general, but given our context, we're talking about the defense of the Christian faith. Um, the main text for something like apologetics, uh, the place that apologists typically go, is First Peter chapter 3, where Peter is writing to believers who are being persecuted, and he says, starting in verse 14 of First Peter chapter 3, but even if you should suffer, for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, uh, nor be troubled. And then verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. And that word defense there uh, is the Greek word apologion. And that's where we get our, our uh, word apologetics from. But he goes on to say, uh, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, that's verse 16, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There are many other verses that you can go to uh, in order to see something like the apologetic endeavor. For example, Jude 3, uh, Jude is eager to write to uh, the saints there about their common salvation. But he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And uh, even with regard to particular methodologies of apologetics, in particular, I believe presuppositional or covenantal apologetics, we could go to different uh, texts throughout Scripture to get some of the principles that are behind that. Uh, that method and approach. And we'll give you an opportunity to do that later on on the podcast or in the episode. Um, but for now, what are some ways that we can remain evangelistic while defending our faith? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, an interesting question. Well, for one thing, apologetics often take place in the context of evangelism. So, if you're speaking to someone, you, you, you tell them the gospel, which the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's according to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and you can tell someone your testimony, uh, how you came to know Christ. You can tell them about your conversion. You can tell them about your life 
after having followed Christ, these sorts of uh, things. But then when a person wants to um, move on from that or, or say, well, that's all nice, but I don't even believe in God, or what do you do about biblical contradictions, or, you know, what, why, if God is all good and all powerful, why does evil exist? These sorts of objections and questions uh, regarding Christianity, I, I don't think it's in our best interest or in that person's best interest, nor do I believe we're called to simply disregard that person and to say, well, never mind, you, you got me there and, and go on about your business. Uh, Christianity offers an intellectual challenge for the the unbeliever. And so I think that it's, uh, it, it, first and foremost, we should remember that this apologetic endeavor in the context of evangelism is about evangelism. It's about uh, attempting to persuade an unbeliever to the truth of, of the Christian worldview, uh, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scriptures, uh, whereby they can be saved. Um, apologetics has a lot of other different functions. For example, we talk about trying to get sheep in with apologetics, but uh, really apologetics is every bit as much about keeping the sheep in, as it were. Uh, God uses means to accomplish his ends, and so uh, as, as a type of discipline even, apologetics helps us to uh, to search out the, the, the nooks and crannies of our faith and where it leads us in terms of faith-seeking understanding in that overall project. Apologetics can also help with regard to just pushing back against the culture uh, in general, um, you know, no matter where one stands on the whole culture war thing and all of that. Uh, you know, you, you do have a lot of false ideas that are just kind of out there in the air and uh, a, a sound Christian apologetic helps to kind of salt that down and, and push back against that a little bit. So uh, in terms of a classical or an evidentialist apologetic or, or a school like that, um, those folks are often speaking of apologetics as clearing the field uh, for doing uh, evangelism. So they're trying to do away with some of the objections that might be raised in order to then present the gospel. Whereas I think a presuppositionalist will come at this from uh, explicitly an evangelistic position, or at least should do so, uh, when engaging with an unbeliever. And then the entire apologetic method will circle around uh, that gospel core and that evangelistic core to call upon the unbeliever to, to repent, uh, to call upon the unbeliever to place their faith in Jesus Christ uh, as Savior and as Lord, uh, for for the fact of, of redemption, both in, in a spiritual sense, but also in the sense of having a right understanding of the world then predicated upon uh, God's revelation to us. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned in that last answer, uh, evidentialism and uh, classic apologetics in uh, that last response and I want to contrast those and compare those with presuppositional apologetics. So maybe for the sake of this question, it might be helpful to give a brief introduction to the three of them and then really focus in on presuppositional apologetics. So what is presuppositional apologetics and how does it compare with other apologetic methodologies? Yeah, presuppositional apologetics, or they've also been called covenantal apologetics or transcendental apologetics. Um, Presuppositional apologetics are often taken to be marked or, or, or called out as unique uh, 
based on this idea that all of us have presuppositions whereby we view arguments and evidence and reasoning. The problem is that's much too broad of an interpretation of, of what we mean by presuppositional apologetics. Uh, just, just the idea or the fact that we all have presuppositions is nothing unique to a presuppositional apologetic method. So we need to understand what is the unique feature here. And it's something like this. Uh, presuppositionalists would hold that the, the authority of God and the Christian worldview in a holistic sense uh, and, and that concrete reality of the Christian worldview is the necessary precondition for human intelligibility. So it's not merely that we all have presuppositions. The idea is that the presupposition which makes sense of everything is the Christian worldview itself. And to deny that presupposition then uh, winds up taking one into the realm of, of folly or foolishness in a biblical sense, in the proverbial sense of scripture. So uh, that's kind of the core of presuppositionalism, I think. Uh, there's no neutrality. Um, there should be no autonomy uh, or a, a self-law apart from God, apart from uh, his lordship uh, in, in any realm of life, in any realm of thought. So that's kind of the core of presuppositionalism. Now, people talk about, for example, John Frame mentions a presuppositionalism of the heart, where he's referring to uh, motives or, or kind of an attitude or posture uh, by which we approach the apologetic endeavor. I think that's helpful in one sense, but it, it relegates the presuppositional methodology too much to, to merely the subjective element. Uh, in the sense that Frame is talking there, you can refer to many classical apologists or evidentialist apologists and, and so on and so forth as presuppositionalists because they engage in a presuppositionalism of the heart. The real difference then between presuppositional methodology and classical or evidentialist is borne out in the objective nature of the argumentation that is used. Presuppositional apologetics are going to approach uh, various topics from within the context of this transcendental clash of worldviews. In other words, one overarching worldview uh, placed in opposition or an, in antithesis to its opposite, uh, placed in opposition to the non-Christian worldview or a worldview that's predicated or based on autonomy. Um, so that's kind of the, the overarching uh, scheme when we come to presuppositional apologetics. I don't know how helpful it is in some sense to divide the schools up the way that we have in terms of presuppositional uh, reformed epistemology, which is not even an apologetic method proper, uh, or, or evidentialism or classical apologetics or cumulative case apologetics or cultural apologetics. Uh, these may be helpful in terms of a perspective, but oftentimes when we really press on each of these, we realize that uh, by and large, I think Christians are, are using the same type of methodology. Uh, classical apologetics emphasize natural theology more so than do presuppositional apologetics. That doesn't mean that presuppositional apologetics preclude the use of natural theology in a dogmatic as opposed to a pre-dogmatic sense. So methodologically, 
I would say that classical apologetics, uh, in their in their truest sense, in distinction from presuppositionalism, would approach the apologetic endeavor from the standpoint of pre-dogmatic uh, natural theological arguments. In other words, we base the entirety of our faith upon these arguments that we come up with from natural reasoning and just looking at the world around us. Uh, the same with regard to to evidentialism, there are those who use evidences in a pre-dogmatic sense. So uh, they're evidentialists in the truest sense. They are empiricists, and so they're going to use empirical data, and they base their faith upon that empirical data. Both of those are a type of faith from below or a theology from below, whereas, again, presuppositionalism would not necessarily preclude the use of evidences but it would not rely upon them in a pre-dogmatic function, but rather a dogmatic function. It's not as though presuppositionalists deny that there's historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for example. Thank you. I, I think that's a helpful way to, to think about the different classes as well as and just to show some slight contrast about how they're worked out in practice. This next question is... A little bit more asking for detail or maybe some slight differentiation between those who practice presuppositionalists. So are there variations of presuppositional apologetic methodologies? And if so, um, do they compare? How do they compare and contrast with one another? Yeah, well, uh, right off the bat, there is another school of presuppositionalism that was pioneered by Gordon H. Clark, uh, so Clarkian apologetics or Clarkianism, that is quite different from a Vantillian approach to apologetics. Clarkianism tends to be uh, based more in scripturalism or a rationalistic type approach uh, to apologetics. Uh, some of its defenders will actually go so far as to deny uh, various types of empirical knowledge and whatnot. That's a whole different story that uh, I don't have the time or expertise to get into, <laughs> and I don't want to uh, unintentionally offend any of those who uh, utilize that method, so we will, we will leave that one alone. Within Vantillian presuppositionalism, broadly conceived, we have, uh, really we have a Frame's approach, which John Frame, and uh, John Frame's going to be much more inclined to use uh, localized transcendental arguments, uh, as well as natural theological so-called proofs uh, or arguments, and also evidential-based, uh, evidence-based arguments and, and reasoning as well. Um, so his method differs from Van Til's in that sense. He does not believe that transcendental arguments are uh, a unique form of argument per se, although recently he conceded to uh, Don Collette that there may be something even in the form of transcendental arguments that's different. Uh, so, so those who follow in Frame's footsteps tend to be a, a bit more loose and, and open to changing uh, how they approach apologetics, whereas you have a, a more pure approach uh, in line with Cornelius Van Til and his method uh, Van Til saw the only argument that holds water 
he saw that argument being the transcendental argument, a transcendental argument for God, a transcendental argument for the Christian worldview, um, this sort of thing. Greg Bonson, who was a student of his, uh, follows a very similar method. However, whereas Van Til wrote in a more continental way, uh, Bonson wrote more in the analytic philosophical tradition. So there's still even a little bit of difference between Van Til and Bonson, although I think that Bonson's probably closest to uh, Van Til in that regard. Bringing it up to, to now, uh, even within the last 10 years or so, I would uh, actually divide presuppositionalism into uh, roughly three camps, and, and any of these could pull from any of the schools I just mentioned. But uh, there's really a type of, of fund fundamentalist presuppositionalism, uh, this idea that the Bible is our ultimate authority for apologetics, uh, which no presuppositionalist would deny, but the emphasis here is, is simply on that very dogmatic approach. Um, and so, this again, this is more of a biblicist approach to, to questions and disputes and this sort of thing. I think the other uh, division would be traditional. And so these are the folks who are very well read uh, with regard to Cornelius Van Til. Uh, again, they would agree with the fundamentalists in terms of their commitment to scripture, but they, they point out the value of following this apologetic methodology and the system uh, that's been spelled out by someone uh, like Cornelius Van Til. And then you've got the attenuated Van Tilians. Uh, these folks use argumentation that's more philosophical in nature. Again, they're, they're not disagreeing with the non-neutrality principle or the non-autonomy principle. Uh, they just simply focus in on the fact that arguments are, are analytical in nature and that uh, we should use a more rigorously philosophical approach to apologetics. They're going to be incorporating uh, some of the newest insights of epistemology and, and metaphysics. So they're, they're going to overlap somewhat even with the reformed epistemological approach to uh, the apologetic endeavor. In, in your last answer, you mentioned Cornelius Van Til a lot, and we wanted to talk a little bit about him. Uh, so why is Cornelius Van Til important to presuppositionalism? I know you answered that quite a bit, but can you flush that out a little bit more? And can you give our audience some information about him and his teachings? Maybe a, a little introduction to a biography on Van Til. Yeah, uh, Cornelius Van Til came, I believe, to the United States when he was roughly 10 years old. I could be wrong about that, but uh, he is Dutch, and he's a Dutch theologian and philosopher, and so uh, he, he attended Calvin College, I believe, and studied under uh, Jelema, a gentleman by the name of Jelema, who also, by the way, taught uh, Alvin Plantinga. Uh, anyway, uh, Van Til went on to, to study uh, under Louis Burkhoff for a while and then went to Princeton. Uh, he did a Ph.D. and wrote on he actually wrote against idealism as well as pragmatism uh, it's interesting that oftentimes van til is associated with the idealist stream of philosophy uh, he does use some of their terminology but he's actually attempting to overturn their view as as a so-called world view uh, van til denies deductive systems 
like those taught by by Hegel and and others. He is actually working against idealism. In fact, I was just reading uh, Bavink this morning, and Bavink mentions that idealism was was somewhat dead, uh, even at the time that he was writing. It had lost its influence and popularity. But anyway, uh, Van Til is drawing on folks like Herman Bavink, uh, and again, that Dutch Reformed tradition. He's drawing on uh, Abraham Kuyper and uh, Gerhardus Voss. But again, to say that Van Til is drawing on any one thinker is, is somewhat misleading because Van Til made it a point to disagree with virtually everyone <laughs> uh, around him. Uh, even in writing, uh, you know, the beginning of, of the book uh, that that B.B. Warfield wrote on, on Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture, inspiration of Scripture, uh, Van Til is, is critiquing him, and he critiques him in his own writings as well. Um, Van Til was called upon to to come and teach at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and he taught there, oh, I don't remember how long, 30 or 40 plus years. Um, but anyway, Van Til's drawing on, on all of those different uh, methodologies which preceded him, and he believes is somewhat of an innovator, uh, taking what he sees in Reformed thought and then working off that to, uh, to, to evaluate it in accord with Scripture and to push the apologetic endeavor forward uh, in distinction from both other schools of theology and in distinction from other approaches to apologetics. So very, very important voice. Uh, in presuppositional apologetic methodology, uh, he wrote a lot, and uh, virtually everything he wrote ag agrees with itself, in my view. If you look at uh, one of his earliest uh, works, Common Grace, that may actually be the very first thing he wrote, um, it, it's, he is saying within that uh, many of the same things that he says at the very end of his career. And so uh, very consistent again, in my view, uh, even over the course of many, many years and, and decades of service to the church and to the academy. This next question is kind of off the cuff, but it has to do with something you mentioned earlier in respect to Vantillian apologetics and, and presuppositional apologetics, and that is the idea of the transcendental argument. Um, could you just give an example of what that might look like for our audience? Yeah, um, there are many different ways or, or um, instances in which the transcendental argument um, could be exemplified. So the difficulty here is one of reference to a worldview. Because the worldview is by definition all-encompassing, um, you can look at any, uh, any general principle or operative feature of a worldview and come away with something like a transcendental argument. So here's what you do with a transcendental argument. You, you start uh, in talking with, let's say we're talking to an unbeliever, a non-Christian, you start by uh, bringing up something that the person uh, would not disagree with, with which the person would not disagree. So, uh, for example, the principle of induction, the idea 
the idea that there uh, the idea that there are regularities in nature, let's say, that we can uh, make predictions based on the natural order of things. Now, a person who believes that uh, needs to be able to account for that in terms of some sort of preconditions. Or a person who denies that uh, still has things to account for in terms of their own worldview. So let's say that they affirm the inductive principle, they're going to have to ask themselves questions like, uh, why is it that I believe that the future will resemble the past in terms of my experience? Why is it that I believe that the foods that I ate yesterday are going to continue to nourish me today? Uh, why do I have that expectation? And it won't do to simply answer and say, well, yesterday uh, or, or in the past, those foods have always nourished me. So in future experience, those foods will nourish me. That begs the question. That assumes the very thing that still needs to be proven. Whereas in a Christian worldview, we believe that God is a God of order, that God has created us to be at home in the world, as it were. And uh, he even makes specific promises like that in Genesis 8.22, after the flood, uh, God guarantees that as long as the earth abides, these various processes will continue as they always have. And so even though there's not a strict uniformity of nature, there is certainly a regularity or predictability about the world that we find ourselves in. So if a person affirms the inductive principle, then that person needs to be able to account for the inductive principle. If a person denies the inductive principle, then they have a problem because they can't do science. Uh, then they have a problem because they have no rational explanation for why they expect things to generally turn out the way that things turn out. Uh, this undermines rationality itself. This undermines, uh, in principle, our ability to, to function in the world, to even be able to communicate insofar as things are based on induction, insofar as, as things are, are based on inductive reasoning, uh, this type of argument will, uh, will render the unbeliever hopeless in terms of a rational account uh, of anything. And so when you, when you put this into the grand scheme of things, what Van Til would say is in order to you know, utter one word in affirmation or denial of God, one must actually presuppose that he exists. Uh, one must actually presuppose God in order to argue for or against him. So the transcendental argument can, can work off any of these different general principles or operative features, uh, logic, science, morality, human dignity, and the list goes on. Again, because we're dealing with entire worldviews, um, we can go to any of those. The, the Christian is going to say, here's why Christianity is sufficient to account for, and then list these various things. And then the Christian is going to challenge the unbeliever. Now, on the basis of your worldview, how do you account for these various things? And the idea is that uh, the apologetic silences the unbeliever. Uh, it, it renders them incapable of even uttering anything if they're consistent with their principle. So what we're actually pointing out is that they're borrowing from the Christian worldview in order to make sense of anything at all. 
this next question you answered partially whenever we asked you uh, what are some steps to remain evangelistic while defending the faith. But um, in my experience, whenever I try to introduce apologetics to people, uh, they view apologetics as a hobby that YouTubers have. Uh, so with that said, and with the discussion that we've been having today, can you give us some more practical examples in which the lay Christian would use apologetics throughout their daily life? Yeah, and I would start by saying amen. It is a hobby that YouTubers have. Uh, and I, I think that uh, apologetics, uh, that, that's something we need to do uh, even on YouTube. That's something that we need to do even in Discord channels or in chat, you know, text-based chat channels or on uh, message forums. Uh, apologetics is something we need to be engaged in in every area of life. And so there are apologetics, uh, the need for apologetics in the academy. Uh, you have a, a man like, and I mentioned him earlier, Alvin Plantinga, um, who is very well respected in the academy or, or a classical apologist like uh, William Lane Craig, uh, these men have pushed back hard against unbelief in the academy and made room for others to be able to come in and do serious philosophical work uh, and even theological work from a Christian perspective or from a Christian uh, worldview. And, and this... Uh, this works itself out in terms of the relationships that we build with others uh, in the academy to be able to to tell them about Jesus Christ, about his crucifixion, about his resurrection uh, for our sins, about the salvation that's available to them through faith in him. And so apologetics is really important on YouTube. It's really important in the academy. It's really important uh, in the context of the local church um, when a, a pastor is preaching the Word of God. Uh, the Bible is not just some irrelevant old document. Uh, it, it is relevant to the things going on uh, in our lives today. Uh, the people in the pews are wondering how it is relevant, and the discipline of apologetics uh, can help as the pastor, as the, the, the preacher, the teacher, uh, is is doing the exposition of, of God's word. Apologetics can help uh, him to apply these truths of God's word uh, to our lives in, in various uh, ways, particularly with regard to an intellectual capacity. And so then apologetics help us just on the practical level, of course, to bolster our evangelistic witness, um, but also, you know, in the workplace, <laughs> when, a, when a co-worker comes up and and says, you know, actually, I believe that uh, that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Well, you, you, you could just say, well, that's interesting and go on about your day. Or as a Christian who's been placed there by God in that specific place and time, you could come back and say, you know, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Yahweh and then go to Psalm 102 and then shoot over to Hebrews 1 and, and look at how uh, Jesus Christ the Son is identified with Yahweh of the Old Testament, or the same thing with Isaiah 6 and John 12, I believe it is. You know, is. I'm talking about uh, intertextual type arguments now against uh, Arianism or against uh, some cult, popular cult beliefs. That's still apologetics. And so I, I think that having these answers, being prepared to, to give a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason, for the hope that is within us, um, this is something that is for the academic 
and it's something that's for the so-called layperson as well. Um, even with regard to ourselves, I think that a, a faith that is a maturing faith is a, a faith which seeks understanding. And so in that sense, apologetics is, uh, is certainly a, a route to uh, our progressive sanctification uh, in, in the Lord, uh, learning more about what the Bible teaches, how it applies to the, the life of the intellect. This next question is is another one that, that wasn't in the original ones we sent to you, but I did want to let the audience know that you have written a book titled The World in His Hands, and in it you engage with the subjects of divine providence and, and science. Some of the things you addressed in, in the previous question that I asked you on the transcendental argument, but... um. Even just yesterday, I was talking with my my sister about the relationship with Christianity and science. So if you would, maybe just kind of flesh out about how Christians should should begin thinking about science, its laws, its findings, and, and how, how we should really just begin thinking about that. You were breaking up a bit there, but it uh, sounds like you wanted a rundown of the... Um transcendental argument or at least this this argument uh, regarding science and induction and laws of nature so uh, with regard to divine providence and i'll just sort of summarize what i do in that book um, i i look at three different approaches to divine providence um, you can think of it like this one of those approaches uh, is all god with the world not really being involved the other approach is all world with no God really being involved. And then the third approach is sort of a both and. And so the first approach to providence, and I'm looking at um, reformed writers in particular when I approach that topic. Uh, the first approach where it's all God and no world involved, uh, every cause is a primary, uh, God, God is the primary cause. Okay, so so. There is no secondary causality, is what I'm trying to say there. Um, someone like Jonathan Edwards uh, would have held this view, so that each event you see happening, it, it has no empirical cause um, per se, uh, other than the fact that God brought it about. So it's not that the match is used to light the fire, it's that God causes the match to move and God causes the spark to fly and God causes the fire to start without any uh, regard to the secondary scientific causality involved in that uh, whatsoever. That view is not as difficult. I mean, that, that view is not as, uh, as easy, rather, to refute as people sometimes make it out to be. So there is a seriousness to that approach. Uh, another view would just take it that God is a bit like the cosmic watchmaker. He winds everything up and lets it run on its own. Uh, the problem with an approach like that, and you can use a, a cosmological argument of sorts to show the problem here, uh, the universe would then need sort of its own mechanism to sustain itself in existence. And you say, well, that mechanism could just depend upon another mechanism and so on and so forth. Uh, ad infinitum. And so what you need is kind of the, it's the first move, first unmoved mover 
uh, type argument there to ward off through natural theology uh, this idea that the world kind of operates on its own and apart from God. So the third view of providence then would be what I believe the Bible teaches. And this is the, the traditional view where we divide providence up into three different uh, perspectives or categories of, uh, of, of sustenance, right? Or, or uh, God holding the world in existence. Uh, and then there is concurrence, which is simply God acting uh, in and through the agents in the world. And then there is governance, where God is actually governing uh, the world toward its end. So God is preserving his creation concurrently and governing it toward its end. And this involves primary causation, with God being the primary causal agent, and secondary causation, with the various things in creation bringing about an event. So uh, for when you have a given event... You have two agents, as it were, uh, acting to bring about that event. Now, <laughs> jumping ahead uh, to laws of nature, there are roughly three approaches that we can take to understanding the laws of nature. One approach is to, it's called scientific essentialism. Uh, this is a view defended by Brian Ellis. Uh, he's drawing from Aristotle. I believe that objectivist in the Randian sense would fall into a category roughly like this. Um, they take it to be the case that the laws of nature are, are logically necessary. Um, and so there are lots of different problems with this sort of view that I don't really uh, have time or the wherewithal to, to jump into right now. But um, the laws of nature, it seems, are not true in every possible world. Uh, in every possible state of affairs, in other words. It seems as though um, the laws of nature could be different from what they are, unlike something like the law of identity, A equals A. That seems to be necessary in, in every conceivable state of affairs, right? Whereas you could, you could conceive of... Um, a world without gravity, it wouldn't be a very pleasant world, but I think we could probably conceive of a world without gravity uh, in some sense, uh, or, or, you know, pick your, pick your law, right? Uh, on the other hand, the second view, you've got uh, sort of a regularity thesis. This was big with David Hume and others, where the laws of nature are actually just descriptive. They're not prescriptive at all. Um, they're simply describing various states of affairs that come about, and there's no necessary connection between events. Event A happens, event B happens. Uh, we, we see those events together, but we don't see the, the causality or, or any law-like relation or connection between those events. And so really it, it kind of reduces causation uh, to, to mere correlation in terms of experience with no guarantee that uh, that we'll see things the same way in the future. So the third view, which I defend, is the view that laws of nature carry something called gnomic or natural necessity. This is something in between uh, strict logical necessity and the descriptive view that I just uh, described. So this is God as our providential creator, uh, sustaining existence 
and and concurrently working with it and preserving everything and, and governing it towards its end. And so what we have there is God is the primary uh, agent and then secondary causality in nature. And this allows us then to be able to solve something like David Hume's problem of induction to where we can expect in general that the future will resemble the past, to where we can make scientific predictions uh, and do the work of science. Chris, um, if someone's interested in learning more about apologetics, where should they start reading? Uh, what resources should they look to? Yeah, um, well, there are, are a lot of them out there now. But The Battle Belongs to the Lord by K. Scott Oliphant, I think it's just a very basic approach to various passages in Scripture that uh, present different elements of the apologetic endeavor. So I'd recommend that one that's written on uh, roughly a high school level. What's Your Worldview uh, by Dr. James Anderson. He's at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Uh, that's a, a wonderful little book that you could just simply hand to uh, an unbeliever uh, or to a, a young believer. Uh, and it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure story, but it goes through the different facets of a worldview and explains those. Um, Every Thought Captive is along those same lines. It's a very introductory-level text by Richard Pratt. It's quite old now, but again, it's written on a, a, on a high school um, level. Uh, you've got, uh, on a more intermediate level, uh, presuppositional apologetics stated and defended. This was an old manuscript that was found after Greg Bonson passed away. Uh, so you can kind of see the development of his thought uh, in that book. And it's a decent, uh, not quite introductory, but uh, sort of an intermediate level text. Uh, Christian Apologetics, of course, by Cornelius Van Til. Uh, and then you've also got, on, on a more advanced level, books like uh, the Defense of the Faith by Van Til. Uh, Oliphant has two readers on Christian apologetics, past and present. Those are primary source readers in Volume 1, Volume 2. Uh, the, the, the big book is Van Til's Apologetic, Readings and Analysis. This is by Greg Bonson. Uh, Van Til's Apologetic, Readings and Analysis. And that is, is Bonson goes through and explains Van Til's thought. Uh, and interacts with it. Uh, that's kind of the go-to book for a good summary uh, on an advanced level of presuppositional apologetics. Of course, John Frame has his uh, doctrine uh, series, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the knowledge of God, the doctrine of the Word of God, the doctrine of the Christian life. Uh, it's a theology of lordship series, so that's a fairly good advanced level series. Right now, I think, though, if I had to recommend one book, it would be uh, Why Should I Believe Christianity by James Anderson. That's the best uh, introductory level book on uh, using a presuppositional method that's fair to the other methods and arguments as well. Uh, again, that's something that a believer could read to learn more. That's something that you could simply hand to a, a non-Christian as well. Uh, to, to begin the discussion on, on these difficult topics. Chris, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast today to discuss presuppositional apologetics. Yeah, thank you guys again for having me. 
And uh, I hope most of that makes sense. And if not, I hope your listeners will reach out to me. Well, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, accessible, and accredited. You can learn more about them at cbtseminary.org. That is cbtseminary.org. And Chris Bolt has offered for people to reach out to him if they have more questions. So we will link his uh, social media information, uh, maybe his Twitter account in the bio. Thank you for listening today. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.